there. Thanks for joining me for episode eight of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your sweet and sour host, Kristen Oz, aka Kiki Writes. In this episode, we are covering two more season one episodes of the show. Episode 14, King of the Hill, and episode 15, Uptight. Now, I normally endeavor and usually fail to keep the shows under an hour, but I know in this case I'm not going to be able to do it. It's going to go over because between these two episodes, there is a lot. So, enough of this chit-chat. Let's go to Hawaii. Who is he, Danny? Marine on leave from Vietnam. I checked his ID on the way in. Name's Austin, John T. Spelled A-U-S-T-O-N. Lance Corporal, United States Marine Corps. You got a serial number? Yeah. 52311712. What about his outfit? I don't know. His orders put him in Honolulu on leave from Saigon. Then to report to Marine Headquarters in Washington. King of the Hill, air date January 8th, 1969. Directed by Jack Shade. This is his only one for the series. Story by Leonard Freeman, our creator. Teleplay by John D.F. Black. This will be 4 out of 10 for him. Dano accompanies an injured Marine on leave to the hospital. Danny has been holding a practice for the 5-0 sponsored Little League team when Lance Corporal John T. Austin wandered up and asked if he could help out. He was having a blast with the kids until one of them lost the grip on his bat and it hit him in the head. While Danny gives a report to the uniformed officer, Austin comes to thinking he's back in Vietnam. He gets the cop's gun and starts shooting, hitting the officer in the leg and Danny in the gut. He takes cover with Danny, seeing him as an injured buddy and everyone else as the enemy and the room they're in as a hill that needs to be held. Steve races to the hospital and up to the third floor where Lieutenant Kealoha is waiting for him. Dano and Austin are in a room at the end of the hall, and Austin has them barricaded behind the table. Steve decides to try to charge in, but doesn't get very far. He talks to Dr. Cutter, who was attending during the shooting, to get an idea of Danny's condition. Cutter can't tell him much about Danny, other than he was hit in the abdomen. Steve sort of loses his cool and wants to go charging in again, but Chief of Staff Dr. Hansen stops him. It's an ICU ward, and the patients in there could easily go into shock due to gunfire. When Steve asks for tear gas, Hansen informs him that that will induce a coughing spell in Danny that will cut his chance of survival by 90% and also gas everyone else when it gets into the ventilation system. Steve sort of gets a hold of himself and asks for details on the patients in the hallway so they can figure out how to get Dano out. Meanwhile, Danny is trying to convince Austin that they're in a hospital and not Vietnam, but to no avail. Danny produces a small gun hidden on his person, but can't bring himself to shoot the Marine. He collapses, and now Austin has two guns and the police officer's ammo belt. 
Steve talks to the police officer, who doesn't remember much. Dr. Cutter relays that Austin told him to get help for the sergeant, meaning Danny. Psychiatrist Dr. Shermer believes that Austin has had a psychotic break and is reliving a traumatic combat experience, and there is no way to tell how long it will last. Steve and the team try to come up with an extraction plan, but the only way in appears to be the hallway. He asks Kono to get Colonel Cardell and Chin Ho to get as much information about Austin as he can. He also asks Kialoha to get sharpshooter Charlie Tagahashi. Dr. Hansen fills Steve in on the ICU patients. One needs a tech to operate a kidney machine in 15 minutes. Two others are cardiac patients and all of the other patients, but one is alone. One of the cardiac patients has his daughter with him. To clear the patients from the rooms, they get cherry pickers from the local telephone and power companies. Danny keeps trying to talk Austin down, but Austin won't listen. He says the Sarge is trying to hang something on him, but he won't let him. He's going to save his life, and he's going to have to live with that. The daughter of the cardiac patient comes out into the hallway screaming that her father is dying. Austin tries to shoot her, but Danny pulls on his arm. Steve shoves the woman back into the room and tells her to call the desk while he starts CPR. Her hysterical ass finally does. Dr. Hansen gets to the room via cherry picker, and once the man is stable, Steve leaves the same way. Austin mistakes the noise of the cherry pickers as heavy trucks and thinks they're setting mortars. To prevent that, he throws a chair out the window and fires three shots at the looky-loo crowd outside, hitting no one. Colonel Cardell arrives and is pretty adamant about not shooting Austin. He's not much soothed to meet sharpshooter Charlie until Charlie informs Steve that he can try to wing Austin, but he's a moving target. He can't control the bullet once it leaves the gun. Steve tells Charlie to forget it. HPD finds one of Austin's buddies, Lance Corporal Burt Rosen, who informs him that Austin's platoon was rear guard on a sweep and was wiped out in an attack. Despite being wounded in the shoulder, he held a hill for 11 hours with his sergeant, who later died. This story gives Steve an idea on how to end the situation. And of course, Steve ends the situation because that's what Steve does. Naturally, I'm not going to spoil how he resolves the situation. I will spoil it enough to say that, oh, hey, Danny lives, which really isn't much of a spoiler. But anyway, let's talk a little more about the episode. So it starts with Danny taking or riding in an ambulance with the injured Austin to the hospital. And he explains what happened to him to Dr. Hansen because he says he got hit in the head with the baseball bat. And the doctor's like, did he get jumped? No little league injury. But it's kind of interesting that he's clearly on leave and he kind of wandered up and asked if he could help out. And Danny said, yes. This day and age, I don't think that would happen. People are way too suspicious. But back in 1969, they were like, yeah, sure, come on, let's play. Especially since he's in his uniform, what Steve later calls his suntans. And it turns out that unless he only gave Danny like a last name or a first name, Danny says that he got his name from the leave orders in his pocket, I think. And that's how we know who he is. So he, they're in this examination room. Why the exam? this examination room is at the end of ICU? I don't know. I did not design the floor plan of this particular layout. Maybe they took him directly there because they suspected a skull fracture. But still, nobody asked me. Anyway, Austin comes to and this first time we see things from his perspective. So we see the police officer, the uniformed officer that Danny's talking to as a member of the Viet Cong. And then we see Danny as his sergeant. And Austin grabs the police officer's gun, which both the police officer and Danny try to get away from him. He ends up shooting both of them. But since he's already decided that Danny is his sergeant, 
he pulls him behind the table and he's yelling about holding this hill and all of this other stuff. And throughout the episode, whenever we're in that room with Danny and Austin, we obviously, we see things as they are and then we see things as the reality of what John Austin is living through. So we see things set like in Vietnam. Later on in the episode when he shoots down the the corridor at the, the hysterically screaming woman, he sees her as another Viet Cong member trying to shoot him. Why she would be screaming, I don't know. But he's he is full on reliving this traumatic experience that he has. It's as and later Dr. Shermer says it's as real to him as this room is to you. He cannot differentiate anything, which is both really kind of scary because it's you how do you reason with somebody in that state of mind, especially when they are in possession of a deadly weapon? But also it's really sad that he has been so terribly affected by the trauma of war that he's in he's in this mental state. Now Steve gets there and we see something that happens with Steve. We've seen it happen a little bit before when Chin Ho was hurt. We saw it happen before when Danny went to jail. When it comes to his team, he's very protective and he can get a little emotional. In this episode, knowing that Danny's been shot, that they don't know his condition and they can't get to him, Steve basically comes unglued and it takes a little bit of of effort for him to get back to his controlled objective type thought process. Because when he first gets there, he tells Kealoha he's going down the hallway and they have these little armored, kind of like a riot shield except that it's plated, it's metal with a little slit to look through. And he tries going down that hallway and Austin shoots at him and pushes him back. And then when later he tries to go down the hallway again and he like gets physical with Kealoha who tries to stop him because he's just so focused on getting Danny out of there and saving Danny that nothing else matters. So when Hanson comes up and says, hey, the people in this hallway are in ICU, the gunfire can cause them to go into shock. You, we can't be having with this. And Steve is like, he's almost to the point of saying tough shit. I said you can't go in there, I'm going in. I said I'm going in. Steve, nobody goes down that corridor. Don't tell me that. That card is an intensive care unit. There are patients in those rooms in critical condition. And Danny Williams is down there with a bullet in his gut. How many deaths are you willing to accept responsibility for, Steve? What does that mean, Doctor? Gunfire can induce shock. Shock can kill anyone, or possibly all of the patients in that intensive care section. People just out of major surgery, cardiac patients. You want to kill them? Their deaths would be on your hands. Stop him from pulling the trigger on his gun. 
I wish I could answer that question, Steve. All I know is I can't jeopardize the lives of the patients on this floor. All right, how many are there? What are their exact conditions? Are there other people in those rooms with them? Can we get word to those people's facts, doctor? Facts, I need the facts. Steve is like, get me some tear gas. And he's adamant. He looks at Kiloha and says, get me some tear gas. And the doctor's like, are you listening to me at all? You can't throw tear gas down there. And Steve's like, why not? Of course I can. I'm Steve McGarrett. Okay, you throw tear gas down there and you induce a coughing spell in Danny with an abdominal injury, that just like basically ruins his chances of surviving at all. Because when you've already got a bullet feng shui in your organs, the last thing you need is a coughing fit. But he's just so, like almost like a hyper focus of getting Danny out of there that he just can't see reason. And I think it's when Dr. Hansen says, you know, shoots him down on, on the gunfire, shoots him down on the tear gas, and when he brings in the newborn babies, I think that snaps Steve out of it. When he, I guess when he realizes that the only way to get down to Danny is through that corridor and he's got to operate with all these obstacles, the, I guess the challenge of it sort of snaps him back. And so he tells Hanson, I need facts. Who's in those rooms? What do they need? How can we get them out? how can we get doctors to them so we can sedate them so they can, you know, tolerate gunfire? I don't know what drug you give for that. I'm not a doctor. But he wants to deal with facts. Let's do facts. And that's when you see Steve start to get himself together and get his emotions in check and get back to being a Steve McGarrett, we know. So they end up getting the floor plans and... When they realize they can't get anybody in through the ventilation systems, they realize that, yes, the hallway is the only way they can get in. But there are windows to all the ICU rooms. And Steve realizes, hey, if we get cherry pickers, they call them cranes, but they're cherry pickers. From the telephone companies and from the power companies, we can lift either lift doctors up to the windows so they can sedate the patients or tend to the patients, or we can get them out that way. Because they do end up removing the girl who needs the kidney machine. So they get, uh, they do, we do see her come out of the window that way. And we see Dr. Hansen get up that way because one of the cardiac patients obviously goes into arrest. His, his daughter comes screaming out into the hallway and she's just hysterically screaming, my father's dying, my father's dying. And then Austin shoots at her and she continues to stand there and scream. And I am not a nice person because I just wanted Austin to shoot her because she was useless. She just stood there and screamed. If Danny hadn't pulled on Austin's arm and if Steve hadn't shoved, basically dashed across the hall and shoved her back into a room, she would have been shot because she just has no self-preservation skills. So, and inside the room, as Steve goes over and checks the, the dad's pulse and starts CPR, and he's telling her, get on the phone and call down to the desk and they'll know to send help. She's still hysterically screaming about her father dying. I can understand panicking and being upset, but there is a point where you have to stop being useless. I have no patience for people that fall apart in emergencies. I'm sorry. I'm a bad person. I'm working on it. But Steve does end up saving that guy's life. The daughter does come to her senses and she calls down to the desk and they're able to get Dr. Hansen up there via the cherry picker and she, she opens the window. She has the sense to open the window for him so he can come in. And it's, I apparently have watched too much emergency because Dr. Shermer comes in. He doesn't even take the guy's vitals. 
doesn't like doesn't check his pulse, doesn't check his respiration, nothing. He just comes over and gives him a shot <laughs> while Steve's doing CPR and then checks him and he's like, "Okay, yes, his heart's going again." And I'm just like, "Man, that's that's some that's some kind of doctrine he got going on right there." I guess he knows uh, he's the MD. He knows what he's doing. I probably would have felt better if he'd like taken his pulse first, but you know, whatever. Anyway, once dad is saved, Steve gets out of the room via cherry picker. And it's an interesting scene because the way the rooms are, the room Austin and Danny are in is obviously at the back of this kind of like this corridor. So it comes to the end of the building. And we see Steve come out of the side of the building where the room is. He comes, starts coming down on the cherry picker at the same time that Austin decides that the cherry pickers are their, their trucks setting mortars. And he throws a chair through the window and sh- starts firing at the crowd that's down there, but he doesn't hit anybody. But the interesting way they shot it is that you can see Steve, or possibly Steve's stunt double, on the cherry picker coming down on this side whilst Austin is shooting out the window like literally right around the corner. It was a really cool way that they shot that. So all this time while Steve is losing his cool, regaining his cool, and coming up with a plan to get the patients out so they can have a free run at Austin to try to get Danny out of the room. Throughout this whole thing, this whole ordeal, there's actually a newsman outside covering this situation. Because we do have a crowd of, of people watching, which because Austin fires on them. But it, there's also a, a newsman covering it, Jack Francis. So he, so he's keeping the viewer, the folks at home. He's ratcheting up that tension by keeping the folks of home at home up to date. But he also gives us some background information on Danny that we didn't have before. According to Jack Francis, Danny was born and raised in Honolulu. He went to the University of Hawaii before transferring to University of California at Berkeley. He was a psych major first and then switched to police science after he transferred. So we get some added information about Danny that we might not otherwise get because while they they do have personal stories throughout the seasons, they don't have a whole lot. And while the reboot especially, they do their personal lives a little bit more, they didn't really do it as much in the 68 series. And Jack Francis also manages to get in a dig at the other reporters saying that other reporters have been very vocal in their opposition or their dislike of Steve McGarrett, but they're all silent now. So thanks for getting that jab in for Steve. We appreciate it, Jack. But this whole time, Danny's mostly conscious at the beginning and he's trying to talk to Austin. And first he tries to talk to Austin by convincing him that what he's seen isn't real. You're not in Vietnam. You're in a hospital. These people want to help you. And Austin is so firm in his psychosis that he's basically writing Danny off as delirious from pain. At one point, Danny pulls his little gun on him. I really hope that it wasn't just in his pocket. I hope that he had like a special little concealed holster in his pants because it looks like he pulls it out of his pocket. Nothing irritates me more than improper gun storage, especially on your person. You do not stick your gun in your waistband. That is an accident waiting to happen. I am unanimous in this. The thing is, is he pulls out this little gun and he aims it at Austin because Austin's distracted looking down the hallway, but he just can't bring himself to pull the trigger. And the pain causes him to collapse. When Austin gets the gun, you can actually see Danny over there shaking from the pain. So throughout all of this, Danny is trying to talk him out of it. 
when he gets he gets to a certain point where he's kind of starting to lose consciousness and he tells Austin to let them come in and Austin flips out on him and he's like no starts out because we're going by third-hand report of what Dr. Cutter saw before um, he pulled the cop out of the room after the shooting. We think that he thinks Danny is his buddy and then we like okay they think he's his sergeant and then we get a little bit further from listening to Austin. There is actually something rather antagonistic. It's an it's a more of an antagonistic relationship between himself and whoever he thinks this that Danny is. And so that makes it a little more interesting. And by the way, Austin is played by Yafit Koto. And we will talk about his extensive credits later. You should know who he is. He is positively brilliant in this episode. Just amazing. He fully immerses himself into, into Austin's thinking that he's in Vietnam. He never shakes from that. He never phones it in. He's just all there and there is some really great emotion throughout and especially at the very end it's just I mean so good he is just so so good which is why I love this episode and on the blog post that I did it was very close to being named my favorite of the season he's just phenomenal in this he's phenomenal in everything so anyway after Danny first tells him to come let them in. He starts playing more into Austin's fantasy or delusion, I should say. And so he says things like, don't waste the ammo. And that's how he keeps him from shooting down the hallway a couple of other times and keeps reiterating to get him help. And he tries at one point to talk him into going for help and he'll, he'll cover him. And he's like, no, well, neither one of us will survive for that. We're just going to stay here and we're going to hold this hill. And the whole time, we're seeing things from Danny's perspective, which is reality. And then we also get to, to see things from Austin's perspective and what he is reliving in his mind. And that turns out to be the key. Dr. Shermer, who is Nels Olsen with a mustache, 
shows up and he explains that from what he gathers from what Cutter has said and what the the uniformed officer had said, that he is reliving a traumatic experience and he thinks it's very, very real. Because they really don't have a whole lot of information about Austin. They call in Colonel, Colonel Cardell, who is LQ Jones without a mustache. We have Nels Olson with the mustache, LQ Jones without a mustache. Anyway, Colonel Cardell comes in and he can't offer a whole lot of information about Austin except for the fact that we know he's getting a medal for something and he's getting the medal from the, pre- the president so that it's a big deal. And he's absolutely insistent that 5 not shoot Austin. So he's really dismayed when they go to meet Charlie the Sharpshooter there. Because Steve is still, Steve doesn't want to shoot Austin, especially now that we're getting bits and pieces of realizing that he really, he thinks he's in Vietnam. They definitely, and that now he's, you know, he's getting a medal from the president. They definitely don't want to shoot him, but they kind of don't have a choice if things escalate to the point that it's, it's going to be a choice between Danny's life and his, and he is shooting at them. And so to Steve's credit, when they go to talk to Charlie, instead of asking him to kill him, he asks to wing him and... Charlie points out the main problem with that is that you're talking about a a moving target. He can't control the target and he can't control the bullet once it leaves the gun. So he can sight to wing him, but he can't guarantee that's what's going to happen. And instead of leaving Charlie there and saying, well, last resort, he says, forget it. Which is for the best because just as they're going to rush down that hallway again is when the Lance Corporal calls in because he was on leave. So they had to go look for him. The Lance Corporal calls in with Austin's story, which is tragic and yet common when it came to the Vietnam War, when it comes to most wars, all wars, we'll just say that. And that he was defending this hill with his wounded sergeant for 11 hours and his sergeant ended up dying on the way to the field hospital anyway. And that is the traumatic incident that he's reliving right now. And that's how Steve comes up with the plan to get Danny out but also to get Austin out without injury. It's a re- it's a really clever plan. I like the way it comes together, but it's also a bit of a gut gut wrencher thanks to Yafet Koto's performance and the last shot of the the episode is just fabulous. I've already talked a lot about this episode, but I'm going to talk even more because with an episode this great, you end up with an amazing guest cast. As I said, Lance Corporal John Austin is played by Yafit Kodo, who is so damn good at his job. Probably best known as Parker in the movie Alien and Mr. Big in the Bond movie Live and Let Die. He was also Al Giardello, I hope I'm saying that right, in Homicide, Life on the Street. He was Platoon Sergeant James China Bell on For Love and Honor, which was a short-lived series with Keenan Ivory Wayans and Amy Steele from Friday the 13th Part 2. He also showed up on A-Team, Fantasy Island, Night Gallery, Manix, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Big Valley. It's I think he did two episodes of Big Valley, but I know one of them is The Buffalo Man, which is so, so good because he is so, so good. He was also in the movies Brubaker with Robert Redford, The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Midnight Run, and Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. I don't know why, but what a blessing. He was also in the TV movies Rage, The Corpse Had a Familiar Face, Women of San Quentin, 
and Night Chase with David Jansen, Elijah Cook Jr., and Richard Romanus, who played the killer in the TV movie Night Drive. Dr. William Hansen was played by Jeff Corey. We'll see him in one more episode. The man has 236 credits because he was in everything. I guarantee you have seen his face. He was lawyer Sam on Helltown, the short-lived series with Robert Blake. He was Bill McGregor in Morning Star, Evening Star, another short-lived series. He also showed up on Murphy Brown, Babylon 5, A-Team, Manimal, Perfect Strangers, Night Court, Simon & Simon, Barney Miller, The Bionic Woman, Six Million Dollar Man, Starsky & Hutch, Night Gallery, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Wild Wild West, Perry Mason. He appeared in the movies In Cold Blood, The Boston Strangler, True Grit, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Oh God, Jennifer, and Conan and the Destroyer. He also showed up in the TV movies A Deadly Silence, The Lottery, Final Jeopardy, which was written by Sheryl Hendricks, who wrote one of the earlier episodes of this season, Case of the Black Widow, and Something Evil, which was directed by Steven Spielberg. Colonel Lou Cardell was played by L.Q. Jones, as I said. He played Belden on The Virginian. He was also Nathan Wayne on Renegade, and Sheriff Lou Wallace on a short-lived series called Yellow Rose, which starred Sam Elliott Sybil Shepard, David Soule, Noah Beery Jr., Chuck Connors, and Ken Curtis. So obviously it was too great for its own good. He also showed up on several episodes of Big Valley, Gunsmoke, Rawhide, Wagon Train, Laramie, Perry Mason. He was in the Cowboy George episode of The A-Team, which features Boy George, and it's one of my favorites. Probably the greatest example of stunt casting to ever happen in the 80s. He was also in The Magicians, Ironside, Charlie's Angels, Dukes of Hazards, Voyagers, Route 66, and he showed up in the episode Purge of Madness on Bold Ones, The New Doctors, which features one of my beloveds, Ross Martin. It's an amazing episode. He was also in the movies Prairie Home Companion, Route 666, Mask of Zorro, The Patriot, Casino, Mother Drugs and Speed, Hang 'em High, The Hunting Party, the Brotherhood of Satan with Struther Martin, which just sounds absolutely amazing. And the TV movies Strange and Deadly Occurrence, which I believe Made for TV Mayhem just recently, as of this recording, featured on their show. Standing Tall with Robert Forster, Will Sampson, Buck Taylor, Linda Evans, and Chuck Connors. So another one with a bunch of Western greats. Tornado with Bruce Campbell, The Jack Bull with John Cusack, which I believe was also adapted by his father, Dick Cusack. And he was in the TV miniseries In Cold Blood that starred Anthony Edwards and Eric Roberts. Dr. Shermer, as I said, was Nels Olsen, a.k.a. Richard Bull. So yes, Nels Olsen on The House on the Prairie. He was also the doctor on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Thatcher on a short-lived series called Nichols, which starred James Garner and Margot Kidder. He's also appeared on ER, Highway to Heaven, Hill Street Blues, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Lou Grant, Barnaby Jones, Mannix, The Rookies, The FBI, Bonanza, Columbo, Mission Impossible, Ironside, Family Affair, Andy Griffith, Gomer Pyle, Perry Mason, Highway Patrol, and he showed up in the movies The Satan Bug, which isn't what you think. I looked it up. Moonfire, The Andromeda Strain, and High Plains Drifter. He's also showed up in the TV movies Heat Wave, Sweet Sweet Rachel, and The President's Plane is Missing. Our uniformed officer, whose name I could not remember when I was talking about it, that's Peter Miller. He was played by Seth Riggs. 
He also appeared in the movie Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice. And he has 12 vocal coach credits, including working with Val Kilmer for The Doors, Whoopi Goldberg for Sister Act, and the movie What's Love Got to Do With It. Our intern, Dr. Cutter, that's Lawrence Templar. He has one other credit, and that is for the TV show Doctari. The hysterical daughter, Mary Carabinos, she was played by Gina Folinis. She has one other credit, and that's the movie Kona Coast. The reporter who hassles Steve when he first walks into the hospital is Alex Todd. This is his only credit. Lance Corporal Burt Rosen is played by Doug Barden. We'll see him in one more episode. He also showed up in uh, Magnum P.I. and the movies Glory Road and Lush. Nurse Rizzo was played by Napua Stevens. We'll see her in one more episode. Jack Francis, the newsman covering the situation from outside. That's Jack McCoy. We'll see him in two more episodes. He was also on The Ray Anthony Show and has an uncredited role in the 1954 A Star is Born. Abe, one of our other uniformed officers standing guard outside. That's Robert Cruston. We already saw him in Tiger by the Tail. And of course, we also have Douglas Mossman back as Lieutenant Kihaloha. And once again, there's Danny Kamakona playing Charlie, the sharpshooter. Now, I've already talked about our writers, Leonard Freeman and John D.F. Black, in previous episodes. Our director, Jack Shea, he did a lot of TV directing, including 110 episodes of The Jeffersons, 37 episodes of The Bob Hope Show, 14 episodes of Death Valley Days, 15 episodes of Sanford and Son, 8 episodes of The Waltons, 22 episodes of The Ropers, 92 episodes of Silver Spoons, 14 episodes of Designing Women, 3 episodes of Sister, Sister, 6 episodes of Growing Pains, 3 episodes of Valerie, 13 episodes of The Charmings. He also directed the TV movies Married to the Mob, A Little Bit Strange, Hot Prospects, Roxy Page, which also featured Jeff Corey, and he did several Jerry Lewis TV specials. And that's King of the Hill. This episode is a must-watch. So much of the first season is really, really good, and I highly recommend it. But if you're just, if you're not going to sit through the whole season, if there are only select episodes that you're looking for to get a feel for the show, make King of the Hill be one of them. It is so good. I love the way that a lot of it's shot. I kind of wish Jack Shea had done more episodes of the series because there are certain shots that are really, really well done, particularly the very last shot. So good. It lingers. It really does kind of linger with you. Yafet Koto is brilliant. He delivers, really adds a whole lot of emotional weight to the ordeal that John Austin is going through. He really, really nails it at the end, just punches you in the gut. And it's so good. Do not miss this one. You will regret it. This is a fine time for you to take a nap. You're up pretty tight, Dan. Why not? She reached out her hand to me. I was inches from grabbing her. Inches. Let's keep the next one from slipping away. Yeah. Episode 15, Uptight. Air date, January 15th, 1969. Directed by Seymour Robbie. This is number two of four for him. 
Story by David P. Harmon. This is two of two for him. And teleplay by Mel Goldberg. This is two of 12 for him. Dano attempts to talk a girl off of the edge of a cliff. Unfortunately, she's high on something other than life and ends up jumping to her death. At 5-0, they identify the girl as Edie Hastings, and among her belongings find some pills that they identify as methamphetamine or speed. 5-0 takes the case because it seems like a lot of young people are tripping out and doing harm to themselves or others lately. Anyone can cook this sort of speed up, so they decide to go after whoever supplied it to Edie Hastings. Steve talks to Edie's parents. Dad is upset and unhelpful, and he wants someone to pay. Mom is more helpful. When Steve asks about a name in Edie's address book, Donna Wales, Mom tells him that it's Edie's best friend. Steve goes to talk to Donna and finds her delightfully disrespectful, not exactly keen on cops, and not too damn bothered that her bestie just jumped off a cliff. Donna goes running to Professor David Stone, the speed guru. Chinho follows her and reports back to Steve. Dano fills them in on the professor. He was a college teacher on the mainland, forced to resign for conduct unbecoming a teacher because he was turning on half the student body with his supply. In the name of science, of course. Steve goes to talk to Stone about Edie, but he claims to be nothing more than a humble guide. Steve says Edie killed herself, and Stone counters by saying that society did that. He tells Steve that he instructs his children to always use a guide when they go on trips to find themselves, but he doesn't need the chemical enhancement to find his truth. He also claims ignorance as to where Edie got her supply. Steve buys exactly none of what Stone is selling. Back at 5-0, Steve brainstorms with his team about how to get Stone for at least one of four counts, manufacture, possession, use on premises, and or apprehension in the act of passing. Steve decides that they need to get someone on the inside right before Angry Dad barges in wanting to know why they haven't arrested the guy responsible for his daughter's death. Steve reminds him of this thing called the legal system, but Angry Dad is still angry. Dano goes undercover and takes up the simple life of living on the beach to arrange a meet-cute with Donna. They become fast friends. While hanging out at her house, a friend of Donna's named Zero stops by to let her know there's going to be a ball later. Donna says she's going to bring her friend indicating Danny, who's looking very cool over by a tree and not paying any attention. Donna lets Danny know that it's time to get lit, and while she's changing, Danny calls home and lets Steve know. But the ball is a bust because David Stone isn't home. Turns out he's waiting for Donna back at her place, and he's not happy. Zero recognized Danny as the cop who talked to him after Edie's death, and David doesn't appreciate Donna bringing the fuzz to his door, whether she knew it or not. She's going to have to be taught a lesson. He gives her a friendly dose of speed only to tell her that she'll be taking the trip alone, leaving her to cry for him. The dick. Donna's trip is indeed a bad one, and after narrowly avoiding disaster on her motorbike, she wakes up in a psych ward devoted to acid heads and speed freaks, according to the doctor. And it turns out that she knows someone there, a girl named Rachel, whose parents said she went to school on the mainland. Turns out she's been living the zombie life in the hospital instead. Donna decides to help 5-0. Unfortunately, Angry Dad decides to help himself to justice first. And the thing is, you kind of don't anticipate Angry Dad going for justice. You understand him to be an Angry Dad, but you don't actually see him coming when he does. It's a nice swerve that gives a great finish to the episode. But before we can avoid talking about the ending, let's go back to the beginning. First of all, I just want to say that the shots on the cliff 
because they do a lot of long shots so you can see the cliff, you can see the height, you can see the ocean surrounding it. There are also some magnificent shots at Donna's house. Like her family obviously has money because their house is on the beach. You can see the ocean from her pool. It is absolutely gorgeous. The shots are great because they remind you of how beautiful Hawaii is and and also torments me because why am I not living there right now? I deserve to have my eyeballs filled with that beauty every day. I'm nearly a good person. Anyway, back to the cliff. So we see Dano uh, arrive. Uh, he's obviously been notified by HPD. And he tries to talk to the girl, Edie, who's, he's up on a cliff, on the, the top of the cliff, and she's like down on a ledge below him. He tries to talk her into coming back up to safety and she is out there. They keep calling this speed and there are certain aspects of it that I guess would kind of be like a speed trip, but it mostly seems like LSD to me, especially since they keep calling it trips and needing guides that kind of influences you into thinking that it's LSD, but they keep calling it speed. I'm not sure if a speed trip could induce hallucinations like that. I'm not an experienced drug user. But for the record, when we're talking about speed, just think about it as having more like LSD properties. So she is on a trip and she is out there. She thinks she hears the voice of God, I guess. Hey. Hey. Got a heck of a view from up here. See that island over there? That's Molokai. the music of the universe and steps off the cliff. 
and it's devastating for Daniel. After that, you see how kind of torn up of, with guilt he is about that when he's talking about Edie um, at 5.0 later. And when Angry Dad barges in, he brings her picture. And you can see how upset Dano is to see the picture of her and be reminded of his failure to save her. So this case does have, like, I think, a little bit of a personal edge for Danny in that respect. But mostly, the reason why 5.0 takes it is because they said that there are young people tripping out all over the islands. They talk about a group of boys that, that beat somebody up because they thought he was the devil, which sounds more like LSD. But then they also talk about a guy that stabs somebody else because he thought he was looking at him wrong. And I'm like, well, that could be speed because speed can make you paranoid and irritable and agitated. So like I said, it's speed on LSD. Anyway, they decide to take this on because the problem is, is that there's no real supply chain to go after like with other drugs that have to be imported. Anybody with any knowledge of chemistry can basically make this up in bathtubs and sinks to get turned on as Danny says. So that's why they decide to focus on the guy who supplied Edie Hastings. They can at least get one guy, and possibly that will lead to two other arrests. So Steve first goes to talk to Donna and finds her at her house swimming in her pool, and she is the typical spoiled brat. She's living in a lap of luxury, but she still turns her nose up at it like, this is my parents' scene. This is my family scene, not mine. Like, she's above all of this, yet she's enjoying it. Total spoiled brat. Not keen on the police either. Steve tells her she's been reading too many leaflets. I'm like, she's not exactly wrong on some of the points she's making, but we're going to ignore that because in television, the police represent an ideal. Anyway. Steve talks to her about Edie and she maintains that Edie committed suicide, that she wanted out because society is a drag, and she's a real cool cucumber, which Steve totally calls her out on. Garrett, 5-0. Buzz. Buzz. Can we talk? What about? Edie Hastings. She's dead. Yes, I know. Why not let her rest in peace? She was your best friend, wasn't she? Well, maybe that's because we respected each other's privacy. You did know she was hooked. Hooked? Yeah, she was a user. Edie taking drugs? What do you think pushed her off that cliff? Oh, well, you see, I think she jumped to get out of it. But you're such a rock in this rotten establishment, you couldn't understand that, could you? Yeah, this rotten establishment's really kicked you around. This is where my family lives. It's their scene, not mine. Look, Miss Wales... I'm here for information. Information that might help a lot of other kids like Edie. Oh, and how would you help them? Would you use the end of a nightstick or the end of a gun barrel? You've been reading too many leaflets. Have I? Yeah. There are other ways, and all of them better than the way Edie died. High on speed. However, when Steve leaves, she goes running to David Stone, rather upset, and there's basically this insinuation of I'll take care of you, which means like, here, we're going to go on a little trip for you. 
So after they get the info about David Stone, about how he's a disgraced professor from the mainland, chemistry teacher who kept turning on the student body with his homemade pills, which does not sound safe. He's come to Hawaii and he is kind of like, he's a speed guru. He's, he's one of those, you know, I'm only showing people their truth, leading them on their path and there are detours on the path. He's using the high spiritual lingo and all of that stuff. But at the core, he is a total narcissist. And you can tell because he's smart. He offers up Steve a little bit of information. He answers some of Steve's questions, but not satisfactorily. He does stuff like he maintains. He does not know where Edie got her supply, doesn't know how she used it. None of that. He knows his, as he calls them, his children go on trips, but he always says that they need guides. He, and he makes a point of saying that he does not imbibe in this sort of chemical alterations. He doesn't need it to find his truth. That's what makes him the guru, I guess. Which makes sense because with narcissists, what they need is control and for someone to be dependent upon them. So to be in control, you have to be clear-headed. And drugs is a great way to keep people dependent upon you because they're not clear-headed. So he matches a few wits with Steve and he's correct. And at the end, when he says, when you come back, you better bring a warrant. And Steve says, better than that, I'll bring handcuffs. So I'm assuming that means he wants to arrest him, not get into some bondage play. And because Steve knows that this guy is smart, they know they're going to have to be creative in order to nail him for anything. And that's why Steve comes up with the idea of putting somebody on the inside and just then, Angry Dead barges in. Now, when Steve went and talked to Edie's parents, both parents are obviously upset. Their daughter just jumped off of a cliff, which is usually unanticipated. Dad is angry and unhelpful because there's a certain hint like, yes, Edie did drugs and now she's dead, so what? So there's a certain level of shame, I think, there because there's the insinuation that they were bad parents because A, their daughter was on drugs. B, she jumped off of a cliff. There's always that insinuation that suicide is a shameful thing. And so Dad, who is obviously very prideful, is dealing with a double dose of that. And just he's just completely unhelpful at the first encounter. Mom is the one that gives up that Donna Wales is, is Edie's best friend. But when dad comes into Five O's office, his tune has changed in the sense that now he's angry and wants vengeance, he wants justice, he wants someone to pay for what happened to his daughter, and he is adamant about this. You better have a good explanation, Mr. Hastings. That's what I'm looking for from you, my Garrett. Why haven't you found the man who killed my daughter? Your daughter committed suicide. And you know that better than I. Whoever it was, whoever gave her those drugs, he killed my little girl as sure as if he put a gun in. When are you going to arrest him? When we have enough evidence to present to the prosecuting attorney. Now you're playing games with me. You know who did it. My little girl is lying out there in the grave while the killer is roaming the streets. I want him behind bars. I want you to nail him. I want you to nail him good. So no jury and no lawyer gets him off. So you kind of get the hint that yes, he's going to come back and seek his own vengeance on David Stone, but 
At the same time, he also comes across as very much the frustrated, angry dad who is more talk than he is action. He wants someone else to do the dirty work. So I don't think that Steve and the team consider him to be a threat either. They stick to their plan of putting someone on the inside, which means that Danny is the one that gets chosen to go undercover. He's shown swimming at the beach where he's apparently supposedly living. So we get a scene of him swimming and coming out of the water, a little hubba hubba for those inclined. Also no sign of the gunshot wound from the previous episode, no scarring that I could see. And believe me, I looked. And he comes up to where he's, where he's got a fire going, where he's cooking his breakfast, I guess. And Donna comes up and they mention that they'd seen each other on the beach a few times and, and they have a chit chat and end up going, Danny ends up going to her house. And that's when Zero comes over to inform Donna of the ball that's going to be taking place. And that's when he sees Danny. Because the way it's set up is that he's coming through the house and she stops him like right at the exit of the house into the, the pool area. And Danny is like on the other end, the opposite end of the pool, leaning against a tree, looking out at the ocean. Because I told you, it is a beautiful view. I love this house. And he's fixing to light a cigarette and he's not paying any attention. So Zero sees Danny, but Danny doesn't, isn't paying attention. He doesn't see Zero. Otherwise, he probably would have been tipped off that something was going to go awry. So when Zero leaves, Donna informs Danny that they're going to go get turned on. And then when she goes to change because she's in a bathing suit, he calls Steve because there's a phone outside. Because of course there is. Fellow children of the landlines will understand the complexities of the logistics of this. So Donna and Dano head out to David's house. And his place is obviously in the middle of a cane field because they walk down a, the driveway is like surrounded by sugar cane and nobody's home. And Donna kind of falls apart at that and Danny takes her home. And so when she gets home and sees that David has broken into her house, I don't think anybody locks their doors there because Steve walked right in earlier too. All that money, no door locks. Donna finds him in the backyard lounging and she's so excited to see him. And she comes over and she, she kneels down by the chair he's, he's lounging in and he backhands her, knocks her on her ass and lays it out that Danny is a cop and whether she knew it or not, it's unacceptable. She has to be more careful. And so she promises she'll do better. And you think everything's okay. You think they've made amends that he's accepted her apology because she grovels a bit and tells him how much she needs him and all of this, and he scolds her, and she promises that she'll do better, and this, that, and the other, and you think he's forgiven her because he gives her a tab of speed, speed LSD, and then informs her she's she has to learn a lesson, and so she's going to go on this trip alone, and that completely freaks her out that he won't be there to guide her. She's freaking out and crying, and he just leaves her, and it's like, dick. And you kind of get the feeling that he won't be disappointed if she goes the same way that Edie did. Total narcissist. Donna ends up going on her trip. And the thing about the way they shot the trips in this is that, yeah, there's some psychedelic music and there's some psychedelic colorings that they use a little bit. But they also show the trip from the, the tripper's point of view. And it's really kind of disconcerting because their vision is all distorted and everything is, isn't quite what it seems. And they use like fisheye lenses and stuff like that to make it really disorienting. And I think it's actually kind of effective the way that they chose to do this. 
Donna goes on her trip, ends up crashing her motorbike, and not too badly. She has a soft landing in the sand, and she starts laughing hysterically. And it's kind of a dissolve into she wakes up in the psych ward at this hospital. And it was great because the way she wakes up, there's still aspects of the trip happening. So we still see things from her point of view. It's still her vision's distorted. Things are still disorienting even more so because she wakes up in this hospital and there are other people, other women in that room showing the effects of drug use. So there's one chick that's sitting on the bed, like checking herself for bugs. There's another one who's kind of bouncing and doing her fingers a certain way. There's another one that's doing another rhythmic movement. Somebody else is brushing their hair. Somebody else is walking all over the beds and, and everything. So she basically wakes up into this crazy situation and she is still on the trip and she freaks. And they end up restraining her and sedating her. So the next time that she wakes up, there's Steve, there's Danny, and there's the doctor. And she's in a much better mental state. Not happy to see Danny because he was kind of responsible for all of this. But she's a little more lucid. Where am I? You're in a hospital ward. For acid heads. Speed trippers. Who? They're the lucky ones. We got to them before they stepped out in the middle of traffic or set fire to themselves. We're trying to reach God by jumping off a cliff. This speed gets you there pretty fast, doesn't it, Donna? Only one thing you gotta remember. You may never come home again. Oh, no. Not me, baby. Guided tours for me from now on. Doc. a girl named Rachel who Donna was told by her parents had gone to the mainland to go to school but in fact she she's been in this hospital the whole time. I don't know who played Rachel what that actress was but she's sitting in a chair twirling her finger uh, around her hair and she just has this wide dead-eyed stare. I don't think she ever blinked. Her mouth is hanging open just a little bit and she's just it is really kind of creepy because you expect her to to blink to do something and she doesn't she just sits there so it was really a rather unnerving performance I'm, I'm sorry I don't know who that actress is but that's ultimately what snaps Donna out of her David Stone love and leads her to wanting to help 5-0 unfortunately the help doesn't exactly work out because angry dad comes back into the picture but we we know we have this, there is that resolution with her that, yeah, she's going to stay off the drugs because of what happened. And like I said, the ending is unexpected, but it kind of brings the episode around in, in a sort of poetic circle, which makes it really, really satisfying. And really, what more could you ask for from your trip? <laughs> Let's 
let's have a gander at this guest cast. First of all, Professor David Stone was played by Ed Flanders. He is one of those people that I see his name in the credits and I know I should know him, but he's never the person I think he is. And when I see him and stuff, I know that I should know him, but I never think he's Ed Flanders. I can't explain it. But we will see him in six more episodes. He's probably best known as Dr. Donald Westfall on Saint Elsewhere. He also played Walter Bibinow on the short-lived series The Road Home. He also showed up in the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Barnaby Jones, Marcus Wolpe, MASH, Nichols, Mannix, Mission Impossible, Macmillan and Wife. He was in an Ironside, Bold Ones, The New Doctors crossover, which featured Ed getting wounded, and they thought he was going to be paralyzed. So on Ironside, they were dealing with the legal aspects of that, plus, you know, worrying about Ed. And then... On the bold ones, they were doing an experimental procedure on him so he wouldn't be paralyzed. He also showed up in the movies Exorcist 3, Bye Bye Love, True Confessions, and he played Harry Truman in MacArthur. He also did the voice of Harry Truman in the movie Inchon, but he was uncredited. He showed up in the TV movie Harry S. Truman playing speaking and Truman at Potsdam both times playing Harry Truman. He also played Calvin Coolidge in Backstairs at the White House. Very presidential. He was also in The Legend of Lizzie Borden with Elizabeth Montgomery, Hunter, Goodbye Raggedy Ann, Attack on Terror, The FBI vs. the Ku Klux Klan, which also starred L.Q. Jones from the previous episode, Skokie, Tomorrow's Child, and Salem's Lot. Donna was played by Brenda Scott, she was Midge Pride in the short-lived series The Road West that also starred Barry Sullivan and Andrew Prine. She showed up in things like Hazel, Route 66, Donna Reed, Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, My Three Sons, 77 Sunset Strip, Dr. Kildare, Rawhide, Bonanza, Ironside, The Virginian, Mannix, Mod Squad, Get Christy Love, Quincy, Simon & Simon. She was also in the TV movie pilot for the short-lived TV series Chase. She was uh, in the TV movie Sweet Sweet Rachel with Richard Bull and The Hangman. And this is not her first bad trip with drugs. She was in an episode of Dragnet called The Big High in which she played Tim Donnelly's wife and they were pot smokers and they had a child and the grandparents were really concerned that they weren't taking care of the kid and spoiler alert, the kid ends up drowning in the bathtub while they're high and let me tell you, it scarred 11-year-old Kiki for life. It didn't put me off of pot. It made me hate bad parents. Edie Hastings was played by Susan O'Connell. She showed up in things like Big Valley, Ironside, Lancer, Emergency Streets of San Francisco. She also showed up in the movies The Ballad of Cable Hogue and Cardiac Arrest. Her father, Ralph Hastings, was played by John McLeam. He showed up in things like Perry Mason, Wagon Train, Big Valley, Twilight Zone, Gunsmoke, uh, Stony Burke with Jack Lord. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Fugitive, Wild Wild West, The Virginian, My Three Sons, Mod Squad, Streets of San Francisco, Ironside, Mannix, Starsky and Hutch, Little House on the Prairie, Fall Guy, Voyagers, Magnum P.I., Tales of the Gold Monkey. He was in the Grey Team episode of The A-Team, which should have been the last episode of the series, but it wasn't because they screwed the pooch on that one. Never mind. Star Trek The Next Generation and Northern Exposure. He also showed up in the TV movies The Five of Me with David Burney and Dee Wallace, Runaway, If Tomorrow Comes, and he was in the movies Food of the Gods, Cool Hand Luke, and In Cold Blood. His wife, Sarah Hastings, was played by Doreen Lang. We'll see her in one more episode. She showed up in things like Donna Reed, Perry Mason, The Untouchables, Dennis the Menace, Mod Squad, Gunsmoke, Gunsmoke spinoff Dirty Sally, Chips, Trapper John, Picket Fences. 
She showed up in the movies Almost an Angel, The Birds, The Cabinet of Caligari, which came out in 1962 with Glennis Johns. And she did the TV movies A Death of Innocence, The House That Would Not Die, Brian's Song, Nightmare, and Gidget Grows Up. Dr. Fuller, the doctor that informs Donna that she's an award for acid heads and speed freaks, was played by James C. Bertino. He did three episodes of Magnum P.I., two of which as a character called Scrunjo in the Luther Gillis episodes. Zero was played by Greg Leeson. He also showed up on an episode of Magnum P.I. as well as the short The Great Hawaiian Volcano Adventure. He also has an uncredited role in Linda Lovelace for President. And the police officer at the cliff that was played by Robert Ng, this is his only credit. I've talked about David P. Hansen, who was a story by credit before. So let's talk about Mel Goldberg, who did the teleplay. He did a total of 12 episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He also wrote 13 episodes of Big Valley, 8 of Tales of Tomorrow, 5 of a show called Danger, 13 of Studio One in Hollywood, 6 of something called Decoy, 5 of Craft Theater, 6 of Deadline. He did 3 episodes of Dan August, 8 episodes of Mr. Novak. He also wrote episodes of Thriller, The Untouchables, Mod Squad, Lancer, Bonanza. And he wrote the movies Hang em High, Erotic Images, and My Therapist. Our director is Seymour Robbie. He did four episodes of Hawaii Five-O. This is the second one, the first of which was by the numbers, and I didn't talk about him then because I had run out of room on my notes. So he mostly did TV. I know him best. He did four episodes of The Green Hornet, which is a show I covered with Dan on eventually Super Train. He also directed three episodes of Man From U.N.C.L.E., 12 of F Troop, three of The Virginian, three of Mannix, four of The Mod Squad, six of Canon, seven of Streets of San Francisco, five Ellery Queen episodes, four episodes of Wonder Woman, eight episodes of Barney V. Jones, nine episodes of Trapper John, 17 of Remington Steel, and 21 Murder, She Wrote episodes. And that is uptight. It's one of those episodes that I forget how much I like it until I start watching it. It's got some weight that it's not too heavy. Sure, drugs are bad, but narcissists are worst. And it's got that poetic justice ending that you kind of don't see coming that brings the whole thing full circle and just makes it all worth it. It's kind of an unassuming episode, but it's definitely worth your time. Hold it, mister. I'm sorry, Mr. McGarrett. I told him he couldn't barge in like that. It's all right, May. It's all right. I'll take care of it. And so ends episode eight of Bookum Dano. Two episodes that ended up dealing with altered realities. One induced by trauma, the other induced by chemicals. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this kind of long episode. Hopefully you felt it was worth your time. It's another one that I put together rather quickly because of holiday craziness, but you never know that from the length of it. If you want to connect with me online, you can do that at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. There you will find all of my rerun junkie posts, my regular blog posts, links to my published work, links to my Patreon. You can even buy me a cup of coffee if you want to. However, if you need me in real time, then all you have to do is follow me on Twitter at kikiwrites. That's all for me. Remember, keep a good grip on your baseball bats and only take guided trips. Until next time, aloha.